Amen. Exodus 33, the first three verses. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the front. We'll also have the scripture up here behind us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. This is God's word. (laughs) Thank you, Vince. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, awesome. Uh, How you guys doing? Good morning. Uh, So I specifically asked Vince to not uh, embrace me and give me a hug just so I didn't look so short next to him. Um, And I also tried really hard to grow a beard for you guys, but uh, it just didn't work out for me. Um, But I hope hope there's grace here for that. (laughs) Um, So I want to start with a little uh, confession. Um... I am not perfect. I know it's news. I know. I know. I'm sorry. But uh, it's the truth. Uh, no, I far from it, actually. Uh, and I think it's most apparent when I'm uh, driving. I don't know if you guys have uh, been in traffic around 3 to 5 o'clock on the uh, 5 freeway or the 805 going down from uh, Sorrento Valley. It is hell, literally. Uh, but... Uh, I think the worst of it is just this intense feeling of impatience, just like dwelling and just building up in me. And I feel like in the last week, I've talked to probably like five or six different people about how intense of this uh, growth of impatience that they have in their hearts. And last week, some of your kids even told me about your impatience in the car. And so I know that it's happening, it's living in this place. Uh, but I honestly think that this, this move towards uh, like a need to not want to wait, I think, is just growing in our society. I think... Uh, our culture has created this environment where we don't have to wait for anything. Uh, And we are using all of our power, using all of our resources and energy uh, to probably completely eradicate any need to be patient. (laughs) Um, I think, I I work in the food industry, so I see all the time. Uh, I take someone's order and five minutes later, they're asking me, where's my food? You would be surprised how many times I have to explain to someone how a cooking process works. Like, first you order, and then it cooks, and it takes a little bit of time. Um, You know, fast food is the same way. You know, first of all, fast food. So five minutes, you have a hot cheeseburger in your mouth. Uh, Now they have drive-thrus, and so that shortens the time, and now they have two lanes in the drive-thrus. When I was a kid, they barely even had drive-thrus. Now they have two, sometimes three. It's insane. Um, but I think you could just see it in technology, in phones, in the fashion industry, in the food industry, in the shopping online. Everything is just moving towards let's not wait for anything. And I think it really uh, shows up in our relationship with God as well. Um, 
I think we can see this lack of patience and this lack of um, wanting or desiring to wait for anything. We, we have this mentality of, I want it now. I see it now. I need it now. Um, there's an old commercial when I was growing up. It's, it's my money, and I want it now. <laughs> Anybody know that one? Yes. I'm not, I thought no one was going to say yes. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Every time I hear that, I'm like, that's what, exactly what I think about. But it's the truth. I feel like that's been just ingrained in us, that we don't have to wait. We shouldn't wait. Uh, it's not what we're supposed to do. Um, and I think that it really impacts our relationship with God. Uh, because a lot of the way that he works in us is through processes of waiting and processes of, of suffering. And I think that when we lack this ability to wait, we really turn away from hope in God to hope in anything else. Anything that will give us just something, just something right now because that's all that we care about, is just, what can I get right now? Um, I think it's clearly seen in the Exodus story. I mean, they start from God taking them out of Egypt to going through the wilderness in a pillar of fire, to breaking a rock open to get water, to raining down quail and bread. And now they're here at Mount Sinai, And Moses is about to go up on the mountain and confirm the covenant that they have with God. And what do they do? What does Israel do while they wait for Moses to come down from the mountain? Well, in Exodus 32.1, it says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And from there, they made a golden calf and they started to worship it. And what, like two weeks after Moses leaves, right away, we're done waiting. I don't know where Moses is, but we need something. We need something to hope in. We need something to hope for. Give me something to hope in, Aaron, please. They lost their patience, but more than that, they lost their hope in God. They put their hope in a golden calf made out of earrings and bracelets. (laughs) It was a lump of gold of all things. And they worshiped it, and they said, these are the gods of Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. They even gave this lump of gold credit for everything that God's done in their lives. And it's easy to look at this and be baffled. I was reading this when I was uh, eating lunch uh, earlier this week, and I was walking home, and I uh, walked past this guy who was lounging on the uh, sidewalk under a bush. And uh, he was just hanging out there, you know, laying on his uh, stomach. He looked pretty comfortable. He had his uh, arms under his chin, feet up. Uh, He was just lounging like he was at the park. But uh, he was chatting to a rock. Um, And as I passed by, I thought to myself, this is exactly what Israel was doing. 
Like, this is literally Israel's situation right now. They have replaced the living God for a rock. And they're worshiping it and they're celebrating as if it's alive. But they've completely become hopeless. And it's interesting because as much as we can look at Israel and be baffled and be astonished that they would even consider doing that, we have a similar storyline. Our lives are very similar to Israel's, maybe not with a lump of gold, or maybe it is. Maybe they're laying on your ears right now. But we definitely build up idols in our lives, don't we? What are you putting your hope in outside of God right now? Is it money? Is it relationships? Is it family? Is it jobs? Is it processes, good, strict processes that help you be successful? Is it self-help? Is it alcohol? You hear comments like, take this and you'll feel better. Drink this and you'll feel better. Read this and you'll do better. Follow this system and you'll be better. And when are you tempted to feel hopeless about change? Is it when things aren't working fast enough? Or they don't last long enough? When you don't feel like you're where you're supposed to be? When things are just taking too long and you just can't get there, that you're not quite there? Or when your season of suffering is just too much and it feels like God's not present? Our sermon today is going to be about hope and about change, but it's going to be about real change and it's going to be about real hope, a heart change and a hope in something that lasts forever. The premise is, is this, seeing God correctly for who he is leads us to hope not in what God does, but in who he is and what he says, and ultimately leads us to the freedom of a genuine covenant relationship that is not bound by you or by me, but it's bound up by him. And so it's going to go covenant God plus covenant hope equals covenant freedom. And so we're going to start in uh, covenant God right now. And as we get into this um, aspect, we're going to first consider covenant. And we need to understand covenant before we understand a covenant God. And so what is a covenant? And it's, in culture today, covenant doesn't exist. It's not uh, a term that we use. It's, it's not even a term that we can categorize. There's no group, there's no definition for it in today's culture because it's so unique and different from anything that we know. Um, modern society doesn't have a category for it anymore. But in Deuteronomy 29, 12, we see, we see a pretty good depiction of what a covenant looks like. And it says, 
You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people. And so why that's a good definition for a covenant is um, you have to notice the language of love in that definition. Uh, there's personal possessive pronouns that are being used. The his people, not just a people. He is our God, not just a God. Whenever you use or hear personal possessive pronouns being used, you know that it's talking about something that's intimate, something that is known, that is connected in some way, that it's yours, it's possessive. Um, it's closely associated with you. Uh, if you would ever talk to somebody or hear a conversation and someone said, that's my Lisa or that's my Tony, you would automatically think child, relative, a family member, something where there is some close intimate connection where you have some kind of ownership, some kind of bond that you're attached to in some way. And that's the way God is speaking to these people right now. Um, secondly, you see uh, a language of law, uh, sealing with an oath to confirm. Um, and so you see this interesting dynamic between law and love, and it's all wound up into one relationship. And so a covenant is a relationship, but it's a relationship more loving and intimate than merely a legal relationship, which a lot of people think a covenant is, and yet more binding and enduring and accountable than merely a personal relationship. It's a stunning blend of law and love. And it's stunning because personal relationships made, it, it makes personal relationships more loving and intimate because it's legal. It's through voluntary mutual binding, promises and vows to be loving and to be faithful no matter what the circumstance. It says, I will be what I should be, whether you are who you should be. If both people that enter into a covenant like that, if both are saying, I'm not after my needs, I'm after your needs, that's, that is far more fulfilling than any other relationship, any consumer relationship that we mostly identify with. The only closest thing that we can think of is like a marriage relationship or a parent-child relationship, but within a covenant, there is this attachment. There is a latching. There is a, a boundness to it. Um, and so here's the point. If the most profound and the most joyful, most life-changing and most deep and glorious relationships are covenantal relationships, then you then your relationship with God has got to be through and through a covenantal relationship. It has to be. But the problem with that is that in modern society today, we don't know how to mix law and love. Most people want a personal relationship with God, 
but they don't want a covenant relationship with God. There's too much commitment. Modern people like to say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. They don't want to join a community or a church. They don't want to be accountable to anybody. They don't want to lose some sense of freedom that they have. But it's the commitment that makes a covenant special. It's the binding and enduring nature of a covenant that gives us confidence. Covenants are also contracts. So there is a legal side to it. All covenants have terms and conditions because all contracts have terms and conditions. A covenant is more than a contract, but it's not less than a contract. So if you meet the terms of the conditions, there are blessings. And if you fail, then there are penalties. It's pretty straightforward. But that's what makes a contract valuable. It's what keeps people honest. It's, there's no thing good about a contract if there's no consequences. It, it puts the backbone into your commitment. This is where we find ourselves in Exodus 33.3. It's the consequences of a broken covenant. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) As soon as Israel made a covenant with God, as soon as they made a covenant with God, they broke it. They were hopeless. They were a stubborn, fickle people. They didn't want God. They just wanted something, and they were willing to settle for anything, even for some jewelry. But instead, while God is commanding Moses to send them away, to send them off to the land without his presence, Moses, he stood in the gap. He stepped up and prayed and begged for his people. He begged God to remember his covenant to remember who he was and remember that these are his people. It was because of Moses that God continued to lead the people to the promised land. And at that point, Moses, needing probably some confidence in himself also, he was probably fearful, probably doubting. And he asked God, he said, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Let me see your face. And so the Lord obliged. And he took him up on this mountain and he said, I'm going to show you, but I can't show you my face or else it'll kill you. I am too holy for you, but I will show you my backside. Dang, dang God. (laughs) So he showed him his back and he proclaimed He proclaimed things about him, and what he proclaimed wasn't just anything, but it was was his character, but it was a revelation of himself. He was sharing more than his physical self with Moses. He was sharing all of himself with Moses. And he said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. It's God's character, God's expression of his character and the expression of himself. This is who he is now. This is who he was before the Exodus. He's shown it to Moses and to Israel this entire time as he's taken them out of Egypt through this wilderness. And he's expressing it now, and it's becoming so real to Moses that the only thing that he can do is fall to his face in worship. And so these, these seven attributes, these seven characteristics that God shares, I'm going to share with you guys. This, the first one is the Lord is compassionate. <laughs> the Hebrew word here describes a, a deep love rooted in some natural bond, usually that of a superior being, God, and an inferior being, us, obviously. Or it can be a deep, tender feeling of compassion, such as an aroused by someone who's weak, who needs help, someone that you care for, that needs you. Uh, Another word of that can be mercy, not getting what what we deserve. We find the same words in, in Psalm 103, 13. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fears him. God is compassionate. It's the same compassion that led him to Egypt in the first place. He heard the cries of his children. He saw the suffering of Egypt, and he promised to take them out. He had compassion on Egypt, even though he knew who they were even though he knew where their hearts were, he wasn't surprised that, that they fell so quickly. Sure, he was disappointed, but he wasn't surprised. He knew exactly what he was getting into, but he was compassionate. That's who he is. The Lord is gracious. The giver of unmerited favor. It's getting what I don't deserve. We get a sense of God's graciousness and his strength at the burning bush when Moses is freaking out when he first encounters him. He's weak, he's fearful, he's undeserving of any kind of status. But God calls him anyway, and he uses him anyway, and he says, I will be with you, and I will speak for you. He says, just come, I'll do everything. I'll do all the work. Just come with me. And although, and all throughout scripture, we see that because God is gracious, he will not turn away from the repentant, nor will he forsake his people. The Lord is slow to anger. He is patient with us. When we are impatient, he is completely patient. He looks kindly upon us. When we're MIA in our faith, when we're hiding from him because of sin, when we are trying to earn our our own way or trying to do it ourselves, God is patient through it all. 
The Lord abounds in steadfast love. The Hebrew word here describes the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. It summarizes the entire covenant relationship that God has with Israel. It is God's undeserved selective affection by which he binds himself to his people. His abounding love will never be exhausted because it is not built upon the fickleness of our character, the righteousness of our good days, the sin of our bad days, the roller coasters of our lives. It is found on God's infinitely gracious character. He is steadfast in his love. And the Lord is faithful. His word is dependable, trustworthy, incredible. His faithfulness is the only reason his people come to know him. It's because he is consistent to who he is. And that's why it's important to know him. Because he is who he is and he will always be who he is. We saw God's faithfulness when his people lost faith under the worsening conditions of Egypt. He, remained the, he reminded them again of who he is and what he had promised. I remembered my covenant. I will bring you out and I will take you to be my people. The Lord forgives. While he is slow to anger, the Lord is quick to forgive. As, as we saw in the Passover, God forgives at great, at great cost to himself. He makes friends out of enemies, and he endures the loss. He takes it on, and the Lord is just. God is full of compassion and grace, slow to anger, quick to forgive, but he does not allow unrepentant sinners to go unpunished. He does not clear the guilty. And for some people, that's hard to hear. But we count on God to be just. It's his standard for holiness. That's how we know that he's good, because he's just. We like justice as long as it's us giving it, <laughs> especially in traffic for me. <laughs> but we want to receive mercy. Thankfully, God gives us both of those things. He is just and merciful. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We see all throughout scripture, his faithfulness to his covenant and to his people and to his character. In Exodus we see it all throughout their story as they go up and down, up and down in their faith. They're constantly going in and out of love with God. We see it in Judges as the people continuously go astray and then cry out to God and he builds up someone to bring them back. And they do it again, and it's a roller coaster 
We see in David's life. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises to establish David's kingdom. God promises a kingdom to David forever. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we see in the first, the first verse, we see God remaining true to his covenant. Even after all that time, Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, it says, a record of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. God is fulfilling his covenant constantly throughout the Old and the New Testament. He is faithful, and it's something that we can look back to when we are feeling doubtful, when we are feeling like, did you really say that, God? Is that who you are? We can look back and know that he has been faithful and is being faithful. John Newton says, our hope depends not upon the exercise of grace in us, but upon the fullness of grace and love in him and upon his obedience unto death. Which leads us into our covenant hope and a perfect example of God's glory, character, and covenant faithfulness is in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment and the fulfiller of God's covenant. As we look back at what a covenant is, and we see that it's a contract and it has requirements. We can look to Jesus to know that he has fulfilled all the requirements necessary. Where Moses was hopeless, Jesus has given us hope. He's fulfilled the requirements, and we've just been drenched with the blessings. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. The covenant that God promised him. Jesus is the king promised to David. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly. Jesus is the new covenant and gives his spirit and a new heart to all who believe. Where there is no hope, Jesus brought hope. While Moses was the mediator for Israel, prolonging their journey with God to the promised land. Jesus was the mediator for us, guaranteeing our future and eternity. As he died, torn apart, torn to pieces, stabbed, cursed, abandoned, nailed to the cross, Jesus died so we can live and receive blessings that we don't deserve or could ever get on our own. This is our God. This is our hope. This is the only hope that lasts. R.C. Sproul's says, hope is a call Hope is called the anchor of the soul because it gives stability to the Christian life, but hope is not simply a wish. Rather, it is that which latches onto the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. 
That is our hope. Let's latch onto that, onto that certainty that God has done everything imaginable to wrap us up and keep us. We don't have to worry about what's coming next because we know that our God has fully satisfied anything that comes in our way. But that's hard, though, because there's always this feeling of, of tension in this space of hope amongst promises because there's this thing that some theologians call uh, the already not yet, where we receive promises and we have them now, but there's also future promises that still are being fulfilled. And so a lot of the questions that Christians have, a lot of questions that non-Christians have is, why are you still like that then? Why am I still here? Why am I still living in this broken world? Why is this world still broken? Why am I still broken? Why am I still suffering this way? Why am I still sinning this way? Why am I still thinking this way? Like, why won't it stop? When will it stop? Will it ever stop? I think uh, C.S. Lewis captures this idea in his book. It's called uh, The Screwtape Letters. It's a really good book. Uh, if you're a reader, I re- definitely recommend it. Um, but he captures this idea, and he says, and if you haven't read it, it's a, um, so the book is called The Screwtape Letters, and essentially it's a book about Screwtape. He's a demon, and he is mentoring another demon uh, named Wormwood, and he's mentoring him about how to pretty much demonize people. And uh, one of his letters says this, I note with great displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. There is no need to despair. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as it is as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is a half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he gets to his pew, he looks around him and sees just all the selection of neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow foolish. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly coming to the patient during his time as a churchman. There's this idea and this reality, this idea that we see church, that we see ourselves in this process and we see us broken and we see us 
barely being built with barely any foundation. And we wonder, is this, is this what you promised me? Is this the church that you promised me? How is this going to protect me? It doesn't even have a roof. It looks like one of those construction sites in downtown that you wonder, is this ever going to be finished? But there's the reality that we can't see. There's a reality that we can't even imagine that this church that ourselves, that we are so extravagantly planned out. And that's the hope that we have. Maybe that's not what we see or what we feel, but that's the future that we can count on. You see it in Job 42, uh, verse 5. We're just Job in the story. I mean, if you don't, if you haven't read Job, the first five-eighths of the book, you would, you would probably consider, is this really what God does to his faithful people? He strips everything away from him and leaves them to an inch of his life. People nagging him on all sides. Loses his family, loses his friends, loses everything. He's left confused. He's left broken. He's left wondering what he believes. And then God reveals himself. And Job responds by saying, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. As soon as Job saw the Lord and heard of his plans, he was disgusted with himself. He said, how could I have ever doubted you? But he didn't know God's plans. We don't know God's plans. But we do know the end of the book. We do know what happens next. We do know what, what we can count on. What's coming, who's coming. And we know that despite what we may be feeling, despite this process that we're taking, that there is something working, that God is working something in you, that he's building something upon you that is going to be magnificent, that he's making you more like Jesus. And maybe we'll never get there, but when we see him, we'll be just like him. We will be made new. And that leads us from a covenant God and knowing him fully within a covenant relationship to understanding the hope that we have in him and how that leads us to a covenant freedom relationship. And covenant freedom, what that can look like, especially in the midst of suffering, is just being able to suffer well. And what does that mean? What does suffer well mean? It means suffering freely. It means having the freedom to be broken. 
with the full knowledge that there's nothing, absolutely nothing that can take you out of God's love. That despite your doubts, despite your fears, despite your constant walking away, despite your constant idol chasing, that you can freely walk into God's throne room, that Jesus has made that available to you, and that there is nothing that you can do to keep that from you. That God wants you to come to him. To suffer well is to know who God is and respond accordingly. If God is counselor, then let him counsel you. It's more than just a knowledge that, yeah, he's a counselor, so I should feel better because he's going to counsel me. It's like, no, go to him and be counseled. He's a counselor. If he is your leader, then let him lead you. Go to him for instruction. If he's your father, then let him hold you. But don't hold back. Covenant freedom is authentic relationship with God. It's no hold barred. It's not a perfect relationship. It's not the movie type relationship, the rom-com relationship. It's, it's free. It's free from any feeling of, I need to be better first. It's free from any feeling of, I can't do that in front of God, or that's not what a Christian looks like. It's a freedom to be vulnerable in the midst of your fellow Christians. It's a freedom to, to express your fear and express your pain. These last five years have been probably the hardest years of my life. I've gone through more than I ever have. A lot of death. Having to identify having to identify my cousin's body that was floating in the ocean for a couple days. Void of any hair, void of, of any resemblance of himself. Puffed up like a balloon. A fiance being terminally ill. And wanting to kill herself. Because she couldn't bear being that weak. feeling abandoned, feeling backstabbed by friends that I thought I, I can count on. Feeling lonely, feeling lost. Just a lot of sin. <laughs> but despite all those things, 
I have never known God more. God has never been more real. I have never known his promises more than I do now. Through suffering, he makes himself known. Through suffering, we know him more. We can never know how faithful he is until we need him to be faithful. And that's the confidence that we have, even in the midst of suffering, is that he will show up, that he will be who he is, that he will console you, that he will be your friend, that he will be your father. And all because Jesus laid his life down and emptied himself out for us. That's the only reason that we have that opportunity. That's the only reason that we have that blessing. Is because Jesus did everything for us. Jesus made the way for us to have a relationship with God. And not just any relationship, but a covenant relationship. A relationship that involves commitment. It involves bondage, but it's God who's bound to us, and he made it that way. He made sure that there was no escape for us, and we can rest in that. We can rest that we can fall and not, and not lose him, that we won't be out of his clutches. We can mourn and we can cry and we can know that God is faithful, that he is who he is, that he is gracious, that he is a covenant God. That's the only hope that we can hope in. That's the only hope that actually lasts and that lasts for eternity. And that's what we get to look forward to, is an eternity with God, our Father. And not just anywhere, but on his right side as children. It's, it's incredible, like that reality, if you just think about it. Like, Third John chapter 1 really expresses it well. It's like, Behold what manner of love that God has lavished upon you. That you be called children of God, and you are. Like, think about that. You're a child of God. Like, it's incredible. It's, it's insane. If we truly lived in that and believed that, our lives would be completely different. And so, if I were to ask you to do anything today, it would just go to God and just be open with him. Reveal yourself to him. He already knows you, but he wants your heart. 
Don't hold back. Go to him when you need him. And get in community. Be part of his people. A covenant is not just you and God. It's you and his people. He made it with all of you. you are, we are all connected. We are all part of his body. We suffer together. We endure together. We hope together. Let's pray. Father God, I am so amazed by you, Lord. And you have done amazing, amazing work, Lord, in the lives here. And I pray that you continue to soften the hearts of of those who you know, Lord, and that that your children know you better, that they seek you out and, and use the gifts that you've that it cost you your life. And they take advantage of their sonship, Lord. And they live as your child. That that be their identity, Lord. And that they find their hope, all their hope, Lord, in you. I pray that we learn how to suffer well together. I pray that we can be vulnerable with one another and with you and that the gospel will be present and will be expressed. You are such a good dad, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you. It's in your son's name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.